favorite part of playing that clip is actually watching people's faces because if they know the movie, they're like, are we doing this today? Uh, <laughs> who knows what movie that's from? Saving Private Ryan. And the scene that it's building to is one of the most graphic and horrifying scenes in cinematic history. It actually changed the way that we shoot war films as a country. But for today, what I actually want to talk about is the moment in history it depicts, the event. Who knows what event it, it leads to? D-Day, the moment where the Americans land in force on the beaches of Europe. It was the moment when we as a country officially entered fully into the ground war against the Nazis and their occupation. And it was one of the most dramatic and large-scale movements of soldiers in the history of our planet. Now, I am a mess, mega history nerd. And what I love about D-Day is that it carries a really interesting role in how we as Americans remember and think about World War II. You see, it hits at something that is very true in terms of how human beings engage with history. What I found is that when it comes to these massive, horrifying conflicts and confrontations, we crave understanding and meaning. That there's something about being human that can't look at these horrifying moments of our history without trying to understand them. We just need to. So we ask these important questions of history to wrap our minds around it. We ask things like, who was involved? How did it play out? Why did something like this have to happen. And what I find fascinating is that in that search of meaning, there's this reoccurring phenomenon that takes place. You see, we approach a conflict as massive, as sweeping, as complex as World War II, and the fact is we can't wrap our minds around it in its entirety. It's just too big. So we, as human beings, do something very interesting. We naturally seek to simplify and distill these massive movements and tides of history into things that we can hold on to, namely defining symbols of what these events mean for us. We take our questions, who, how, why, and we invest them into symbolic events, singular moments, people that come to represent all the greater truths that, quite frankly, are just too big for us to remember every specific detail of. So when we start to think about World War II, we don't think about how America fought millions of Germans, we think about how America fought Hitler. Or when we think of something like the Civil War, we think of things like Gettysburg, the Gettysburg Address, moments that define the conflict in our minds. And I think that D-Day is one of those symbols, probably better than any other, in terms of how we as Americans have come to understand the essence of our participation in World War II. I mean, just think of the major themes of the war, the epic and dramatic confrontation between fascism and freedom, between good and evil, between oppression and liberation, in reality, those themes are created by millions and millions of human lives. Thousands of singular battles and events, untold numbers of human stories. 
but we can't hold on to those. So we take those themes and we place them into this symbolic moment, one that we see as epitomizing all that that represented, the dramatic moment of confrontation which someone stood up to Hitler and the war turned. We just take it and it gets all of our who, how, and why. And I bring this up because this idea of investing larger meaning into singular symbolic moments of confrontation is at the heart of our story today. You see, we've been using this series, God Part One, to dive into the central story of the Old Testament, the Exodus story. And we've been exploring it with one question, who is the God of the Bible? And with one lens, that we can best know who someone is by looking at what they do. So we're engaging the Exodus, we're asking the question, who is this God? And we're looking at what he does in the moment of crisis when the cards are down. And today, we are looking at the Exodus's own little D-Day moment the dramatic event of the first six chapters of our story has been building to the confrontation between God, Pharaoh, and Egypt. The moment when God acts decisively to set his people free from slavery. And I say this is a, a D-Day story because it acts in the same way. Yes, it is a singular event in the biblical history, but it is also a defining symbol of something far greater in the story of God. You see, I think it captures something bigger than any singular details that it depicts. I think it embodies a powerful theme about how this God sees, understands, and deals with oppression and human misery in our world and how this God will be defined by liberation. Now, before we dive in, I actually want to start with some honesty. I have been incredibly uncomfortable, uneasy, and anxious since I found out I was going to be preaching on this topic. You see, this story depicts a version of God that I am most uncomfortable with, a God who fights and confronts human evil in our world. But more than that, there's a personal story behind it. You see, I grew up in a church tradition that taught me that stories like this meant one thing, that this is how God deals with sinners like me, that I was always one moment away from God crushing me because of how wicked I was. And stories like this were instrumental in me leaving the faith. They, I walked away from the Bible because of how stories like this were weaponized and used. And I say that just so you can hear that I approach a text like this with a lot of trepidation and, quite frankly, respect. Because I know how harmful it can be when it's taught the wrong way. I mean, it messed me And I also need you to know that if you find stories like this uncomfortable, that it is okay. You are not alone. You see, the Bible is an ancient book written over thousands of years from cultures and time periods in history that are entirely alien to us. That we struggle to even wrap our minds around 
the context of it sometimes. And then these, on top of that, it's people trying to access an infinite God. Discomfort's going to be part of engaging with something like that. It just comes with the territory. But I believe from my own experience that with the right questions, the right study, the right context, this story can be so much more than what I was originally told it was. You see, I have discovered that this story is far less a moralistic, legalistic warning about a God who's one second away from crushing me and far more a symbol that captures something far bigger about who God is, what God seeks to confront in our world, and what it means that our God tirelessly pursues liberation of oppression wherever it is found. And that journey of discovery has been freedom for me. Because it's let me hold stories like this in a way that I can find the God of the Bible truly in. So that is what I want to invite you into today. I want to dive into this D-Day moment, the showdown of all Wild West showdowns in the biblical story with fresh eyes, asking the right questions and seeing what it teaches us about who this God is may be in a new light. Are you willing to go on that journey with me? Not rhetorical. Yes. <laughs> now, before we jump in, I want you to recall briefly where we've been so far. So the Exodus story, we've seen that God's people are enslaved under the Pharaoh in Egypt. They're being brutally oppressed. God's rescue plan for our world is off the rails. And we meet this guy, Moses, this shepherd of shady character, to say the least, who is called by God to lead his people to freedom. And we're told that God is preparing to confront directly the Pharaoh in Egypt and to liberate his people. And that's what we're going to dive into today. We're going to talk about the moment that confrontation finally comes to a head. It begins in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Now, to wrap our heads around this moment of confrontation, I actually want to rely on those key questions of history as our guide. Who was involved? How did it play out? Why did it have to happen? And I believe to really start to get the heart of this story, we got to start with the who. Because you can't have an old-fashioned Wild West showdown without some heroes and villains, am I right? We need someone with a twirly mustache, we need someone with some six-shooters, we need two sides in opposition. So we're going to look at the characters involved in this conflict because I believe the who of the story needs to be understood to get at the larger biblical themes it's trying to teach. So on one hand, we have God's side of the confrontation. And we already have talked about this the last three weeks of this series. So if you want to get into more specifics about who these people are, we have sermons that you can go back and listen to from the previous weeks. But in short, we have the God of Israel, Yahweh, the creator of all things. We have the Israelites, 
God's chosen people, like I said, who are in bondage in Egypt, who are about to be set freed to carry out God's restoration plan. And then we have Moses, our shady shepherd, who you're like, how did you get this job? He asked the same question, but he's the one who's been tasked with leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, on the other side, we have our villains. And these are the people that I actually want to spend the most time on because they play a fascinating and unique role in the biblical narrative. That is, Egypt and the Pharaoh. So, you see, when you look at the biblical story up until this point, you're going to notice that the story has not had any really powerful supervillains yet. Really, what Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the one that comes before this, is comprised of is individual, small-stake stories that what scholars argue is trying more than anything to depict an idea or a concept that is central to what the Bible tells us about being a human being. Namely, that it's a series of individual, small stories about shady people exemplifying what they call the cycle of sin. Basically, it's the idea that human beings have in some way rebelled against God by seeking to build their own little kingdoms of power in the world where they're in control, where their will is followed. And the fruit of this action is things like violence, misery, greed, relational brokenness. So these stories act more as like a collage of all the ways that that cycle plays out in these smaller relationships. That is, until we get to the Exodus. Because for the first time, we are introduced to true supervillains in our story. For the first time, we are introduced to a human society and a leader that fully embodies and epitomizes the cycle of rebellion and what it produces in our world. These are powerful symbols in the Bible, Egypt in particular. Let's start there. It's the most powerful military empire of the day, and it's built on the back of slaves. So we are talking about a nation built on the fruit of human misery, violence, oppression, subjugation of the weak, domination of other human beings. And even worse, they are depicted as doing all of these things, as embodying this cycle of brokenness, all while claiming divine favor and justification. See, the Egyptians believed that their gods empowered them and affirmed their right to do these things. They believed this so deeply that they actually believed their leader, the Pharaoh, was a god. So they're not only living this out, but they have a deep sense that they're entitled to be the way they are and to do what they do in the world. And this evil empire, this force of history that embodies the systemic brokenness, is seen as taking its truest form in the Pharaoh character. I mean, we want to talk about the guy with like the twirly mustache. This is it. He is supposed to be this evil embodied. I mean, we're talking about someone who's more of a symbol than a concrete character. And I say that because, like, for example, when you read the story, the first thing you're going to notice is he doesn't have a name in the Bible. He's just the Pharaoh which is interesting because kings are mentioned over and over again in the biblical narrative, and they are given names. The authors want us to know who they are in history. They want us to identify them, but not this case. He is just the Pharaoh. 
embodying all that Egypt represents in the story. I mean, he's genocidal, he's violent, oppressive, prideful, egomaniacal, totally obsessed with one thing, power. I mean, this is the true supervillain that we've been waiting for in the story so far. And though these are specific characters in Exodus, what I would argue is that they also act as archetypes and symbols for the rest of the biblical story. You see, the authors of the Bible actually reference them over and over and over again as central metaphors and ways of understanding our world. When there's an empire in the Bible later on that rises up and is in true opposition to God, what do they say? They say that empire has become like Egypt. When there's a moment in God's people's history that they lose their way, that they fall into those trappings of power and violence and oppression, what does the text say? It says they have become like the Pharaoh. I mean, these are far bigger symbols than just being the concrete people and nation that they are. So though God is confronting a singular person and nation, it is also bigger than that. The Bible sees this as a universal, reoccurring story that we will find anywhere we find empire in our history. It sees these characters as being representative of the timeless confrontation between God and the very systems of human evil that ravage our world, defined by power, domination, oppression, subjugation as what they represent. This is what's at stake in our confrontation today. See, I think this confrontation seeks to answer the question, who is in charge of our world? Is it the systems and powers of oppression, domination, or is it the God of the exodus and liberation? That's who's coming together. That's who's going to, two men enter, one men leave. That's how this story goes. I think this is why this story is so important. And it answers the question with the how of our story, which you're going to find from Exodus chapter 7 through 12. It tells us who is in charge by talking about how this showdown goes down. Now, if you grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with this story. If you aren't, I'm just going to throw these up on the slides. Um, so what this is, is there's this moment that carries out through these chapters in which God confronts Pharaoh in Egypt with ten plagues, or divine actions. It's basically how this showdown is going to take place. We read that God turns the Nile into blood, that he sends a swarm of frogs, then gnats, then flies, that he strikes down Egypt's livestock, that there's a plague of boils, that there's a massive hailstorm, there's a plague of locusts, eventually there's the darkening of the sun, and finally the death of the Egyptian firstborns, which mirrors the Pharaoh killing the Israelite babies in our first couple chapters of the story. And we aren't going to dive into any of these specifically, because what I want to focus on is how they work all together. Because how these plagues operate in the Exodus story is so important for understanding what they're trying to teach us. 
You see, altogether, what these plagues represent is God's direct confrontation with the sources of power that Egypt and Pharaoh rely on for their strength. I want to show you what I mean. Let me dive in. First, several of the plagues act as a direct refutation of Egypt's national identity. If you study ancient Egypt for any amount of time, you're going to learn that the Nile River is really stinking important for their history. That's because the Nile River was the source of their strength and wealth as an agricultural empire. It gave them that leg up internationally that allowed them to become a dominant force in the world. So in the first plague, what does God target? He hits the Nile. He turns it into blood. He strikes right at the heart, right at the symbol of the Egyptian national identity. He says, you think that this gives you strength. Guess who's in control of it? And then you could argue that several of the other plagues do the same thing. The locusts, the hail, they all hit the agricultural systems of the Egyptian nation. It is God's way of cutting them off at the knees, reminding them who's in charge. Next, you could point out that the plagues also serve to confront the Egyptian sense of divine superiority. So if you remember, they viewed themselves as divinely empowered and justified. They viewed their pharaoh as a god. They viewed the Egyptian gods as giving them the right to be what they are. And two of the most important gods of Egypt were tied to the Nile and to the sun. So what happens when God darkens the sun, when God takes away the Nile, when God shows that he has control over these two things? What do you think that said about who is truly a god in this confrontation? Not you, Pharaoh. Certainly not the gods that you claim justify your behavior. God uses them to say, I am in charge. And you don't have the superiority that you think you do. And finally, you'll notice that the plagues challenge the Pharaoh's delusions of power. Believe it or not, leaders who think that they have total authority do not take it well when you tell them that they can't do something or when they tell them to relinquish their strength and might. You see, what happens is that God faces Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is forced over and over again to face his lack of control. What do you think Pharaoh thought when he is forced to relent in the face of a greater authority, a greater power, a God who says, I am on the side of a bunch of of slaves. Do you think that reminded Pharaoh of his humanity? See, what I think God makes clear is that there's only one God with power in this confrontation, and he is not on the side of the oppressor in this story. Each plague makes it clear who is in charge, who will have the last word in our world? Is it going to be the systems of injustice, oppression, human evil, or is it going to be the God who delivers and liberates the oppressed? I mean, this is so important for understanding what this story means in the Bible's narrative. And the who and the how allows us to approach the most important question for today, the why. Why does this happen? And I think the why has to do with what it means to be a human being in this world. 
I think it has to do with something we find in the Pharaoh and what he represents for us today. I think it has to do with how these systems and delusions of power impact the human being. You see, when you read the story, you will find a pattern that plays out within the confrontations between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses comes to him. He says, Pharaoh, let the Israelites go. There's a God of liberation on our side. He says, if you don't, something is going to go bad. And each time we read that the Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he refuses to listen. He refuses to relent. He just doubles down on his oppression in the face of the confrontation. And this part of the text, this idea of Pharaoh's hardened heart, has been hotly debated in Christian history. You see, based on how you interpret it and translate it in Hebrew, you can end up with different conclusions. Namely, you end up with different answers for who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Was it God? Was it the Pharaoh doing it to himself? And this whole thing, this translation issue, is crucially important because I don't think you can understand the story without getting it right. You see, who hardens Pharaoh's heart is crucial for understanding why this story happens. And some argue that it's God who hardens Pharaoh's heart in every single occasion, that basically God pre-programs Pharaoh to fail and then punishes him for it. And I think that just brings up all sorts of really, quite frankly, hard questions about who this God would be if that was the case. But more than that, I think that this view is actually an oversimplification and a mistranslation of the text. See, I believe that you look at it in the Hebrew and within the context of the story, the idea of Pharaoh's heart being hardened is far more nuanced and complex and profound than just a blanket statement like that. And I'm going to walk through it. You're about to get some grammar lessons, which is why you came here today. <laughs> so you see, when you look at the verb in Hebrew, for Pharaoh's heart becoming hard, you will notice that it is different at various parts of our text and confrontation. So in the first, third, fifth, and seventh plagues, you find that the Hebrew verb here is not a passive verb. In other words, it is not something done unto Pharaoh. It simply states that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. So if you look at that verb, it is ambiguous, totally unclear about who causes it to be that way. And I think that's intentional. It's not saying that there was an actor doing it. It just says, this happened. That's how the verb operates in Hebrew. Then, when you look at the second and fourth plagues, it uses a different verb and statement. It actually reads that the Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In this text, in Hebrew, God has nothing to do with it. It says that Pharaoh in some way had this internal state that caused his heart to become hardened. In fact, it isn't until the sixth plague and then the final three that we read in Hebrew that God acts on Pharaoh's heart at all. It's not until the very end of the confrontation that God in any way hardens Pharaoh's heart. And you may shrug at this, but I cannot stress how important this is for getting at what I believe the story is trying to teach us. God did not pre-program Pharaoh so he could crush him. Quite the opposite. Six times 
Pharaoh is confronted and warned and challenged. Turn back from injustice. Turn back from oppression. Change the way you exist in the world because it's destroying people. Six times, Pharaoh refuses to listen because of the status of his heart. Hardened by his own delusions of power. His own attitudes towards himself and other human beings. His own sense of divinity and false superiority. By the time we get to the final plagues, when the verb changes to God hardening Pharaoh's heart, it is clear that his hardened heart is already firmly in place. In other words, by this point, Pharaoh has made it clear that the state of his heart, that his vision for the world has been decided, the die has been cast. He has already reached a point where he will not turn back. Defined by his willingness to sacrifice his entire nation to six plagues rather than give up his pride or his power. And God enters that equation. When someone reaches that level, I think God just leaves Pharaoh to become who he was already intent on becoming. And he says, with or without you, I have to act to liberate these people. And he allows the oppressor to turn upon himself in the pursuit of that freedom. I mean, this isn't a cautionary tale of moralism. This is a stark warning on the nature of these power systems and the hearts that they produce in the human beings that live within them and seek power from them. I mean, within these worldviews and attitudes, we can come to see ourselves as God, don't we? We come to believe that everything in our world, our actions, our other people, even our religion is used for the purpose of the accumulation of wealth, strength, might, power, status. And at that moment, what the Bible tells us of the Pharaoh is that we begin to think that our power and might in this world allows us to decide what's right and wrong. And weaker people on that social totem pole pay the price. I mean, when you look at this story, the tragedy of it is that there comes a moment where the Pharaoh is so invested in the way his world works that he becomes incapable of seeing how it's hardening him, how it's leading him to disaster, how it's leading him to that cliff, to this confrontation with a God that wants to liberate and restore our world. I mean, he can't even see it at that point. I mean, this is so human, isn't it? I mean, I think this is why these characters, this story, are archetypes in the Bible. I think that's why the authors of the Bible come back to it over and over and over again, across generations, urging God's people in every generation to find themselves in it by asking questions like, where are we becoming like Egypt? Where have we become like Pharaoh? Where are we walking the path of a hardened heart, living in and creating chains and bondage? This is the confrontation of the Exodus. This is the D-Day moment that embodies the far greater battle taking place, and it is so much bigger than just one event. And I want, 
I want us to sit with that. And I want to close by taking some time to ground this story here and now. Because it's such a high-level thing sometimes that we need to realize that it really matters when we can find it in our lives today. And I just want to start by pulling two warnings I pull out from this story that just speak to me. I think the first is that it warns and urges me to reflect on how I exist in this world and where I find myself in God's confrontation with oppression and human misery. You see, the God of the Exodus is a God that identifies with the oppressed and seeks to set them free. And Egypt and Pharaoh reminds me that, quite frankly, there are times in my life, whether I know it or not, that I'm going to end up on the wrong side of that confrontation. That whether I mean to or not, I end up on the wrong side of that equation. I mean, I think, guys, there are just systems and cycles and powers in our world that create oppression and human brokenness and bondage and misery that is just so monolithic that we can get swallowed up by them without even knowing it. Things like racism, tribalism, greed, domination, persecution, and obsession with power. I think these things can become the air we breathe whether we want to or not. And the hard part is that this story reminds me that if I'm not dedicated to self-awareness, self-reflection, and change, that I might just get swallowed up by them and end up in a space where my heart is hard. I mean, this is the challenge that this story gives me. I think it forces me to seek out understanding and how I can break free from those forces, seen or unseen, to find a God who identifies with his work for the oppressed, the hurting, the weak, the forgotten people of our world. And he says, if you're going to be in my kingdom, you better identify with them too. And he also says, if you're not in the business of breaking chains, you're probably in the business of making them. Second, I would reflect on how this hits us on a personal level. You see, I think this story also warns me that often these areas of oppression and bondage take the form of my heart and my individual life. I think all of us have things in our lives that keep us in chains. Addictions, broken cycles of living, toxic and destructive behaviors or ways of thinking, harmful views of ourself and how we live in our world. And I think that all of us can get caught in these systems, these cycles, these powers, and they become so big in our lives, they become so much bigger than one event that we just stop seeing them. And we end up in a space that they just dominate us. I think... We get stuck in them, whether we name them or not. And what the story reminds me is I need to take those seriously. I need to take the journey of finding out what they are seriously. I need to do the work to name them because there comes a point in my life where these broken things in me get so tied up into who I am that I can't deal with them anymore. Where I feed my anger, my hate, my obsession with status, 
my addiction so much that like Pharaoh, my heart is too hardened to see a God that is trying to set me free from them. I think that's a warning. But more than both of those, I want to end with a message of hope. I know stories like this, sermons like this can feel like I'm just beating you up, but I truly believe in a real way that the story gives me hope. You see, I think it teaches me a lot about who God is. It shows me that this is a God who is defined by his desire to liberate, deliver, and restore human beings wherever they are in bondage. I think there is a God in charge of our history that is so intimately tied to the pursuit of the liberation of hurting people, the ending of human misery, that he will not stand by and allow oppression and injustice and the suffering of our world to have the last word on our history. I believe that he is a God that bends infinitely towards justice and freedom. And that is good news. And that God is trying to meet me. He's trying to meet us right where we are at, right in that very moment of bondage and oppression. That's where he is working. I mean, what the story tells me is that God will stop at nothing to free those who are in bondage, which means that this God will stop at nothing to free me, to free all of us. That even in the moments where I am utterly blind and lost, my God is confronting and challenging and overthrowing the Egypts, the pharaohs, the hardened hearts of my life for one purpose, to set me free. And I'll be honest, in those moments, I usually tend to refuse. I usually tend to harden my heart. I usually try to hold on to that brokenness just a little too tightly. And what I also end up finding is my own little plagues. It's not usually swarms of locusts. No, it's usually a lot more like rock bottom of my own creating. A relational brokenness, the ending of something that is meaningful to me, the losing of myself. But the good news is that I can rest assured that even in those dark moments, this story tells me I will find him there if I look. Because in the moments that I call failure, that I call weakness, God says, that's the very moment where I'm liberating you. It's the very moment when I can get rid of that pride and that false superiority, and I can see that you are set free. That is the very moment when I find a God who is using my darkest hour as the very second of his first movement towards my liberation and new life. That's where I find the God of grace, the God of liberation. So as we close with worship, I would ask you simply this, where do you need to find a God that is seeking to break your chains? Where in your life, do you need to find the God of liberation? Where in your life do you need to be set free? Because that is where the God of the Exodus wants to meet you at. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.